you're watching the New Year's um, celebrations on the news channels as the ball was dropping and all that, whether 9 o'clock or you stayed up till midnight, whatever, almost all the commentators were saying, boy, it's so good to have a new year and have a fresh start. And Shelley said to me this morning, she said, it's so good that in Christ we can have a fresh start every day. <laughs> and that's true. But uh, as we kind of embark upon this new year, 2011, you know, we, we are here today and we don't know what this year holds for us. We don't know if it's going to be, um, in our mind, a good year or a, a year of trials, a year of tribulation. Um, we just don't know. And uh, that's key to understanding our dependence on God. But today... The message is entitled, Seven Keys for a Glorious 2011. And if you turn over to 2 Peter, chapter 3, 2 Peter, chapter 3, I just want to read this verse for you because it's, um, it's a good verse, but they're all good verses, but this is particularly a good verse to start off the new year with. 2 Peter 3, 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it says, To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. You know, if you want to have a glorious 2011, if you want to have a year filled with the blessing of God in your life, uh, growing in grace is an important part of it. Growing in the grace that God supplies us. And in that verse, growing in grace is really equated with giving glory to God. And if there's one thing that we need to understand clearly, and this is in the, the Catechism, uh, Westminster Catechism, it, and it's, it's important that we understand man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's so important that we understand that. That's probably the greatest theme in all the universe is the glory of God. And if you want to have a great 2011, we have to figure out how we can give him more glory than we did in 2010. We exist in order to glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you just stop and think about it in Psalm 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. When we talk about the glory of God, sometimes we just think of some shining light somewhere. But the universe itself is declaring the glory of God. That's how important God's glory is. When you go out on a clear night and you look up into those heavens, amazing. Isaiah 43.20 says, Even the beast of the field shall honor me. <laughs> Even the, the beast of the field, not... Not us as humans, but animals will honor God because he created him. And not only the, the, the universe and the animals, but even the angels. In Luke 2.14, we spent some time with the Christmas story these past couple weeks. And we know that there at the birth of Christ, it was the angels of God who proclaimed glory to God in the highest. So we see this importance on the glory of of God. You see it throughout Scripture. Even in the, the book of Revelation, when God redeems his people and is ready to set up his kingdom here on earth, 
It's going to be a glorious, eternal kingdom. And it speaks of a great song that will be sung that gives glory to God, to the Lamb of God. And that's the purpose of everything that's ever been created, was to give God glory. In Psalm 16, 8 and 9, David says this, I have set the Lord always before me, therefore my heart is glad. See, when you have God in the proper place, when you have God in a proper perspective to where you're at, and you, you understand that it's your chief end to give him glory with your life, with your thoughts, with your heart. In all that we do, if we focus on the glory of God, then it says he will make us joyful. We don't have to go around with our head hanging between, you know, down to the ground and, and, and just whining about whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. We can say, wait a minute, God is, is working in my life and he wants this for his glory, whatever it may be. It may be a hard thing that comes in 2011. For you, for your family, you don't know. It could be incredible blessing. But either way, we have to understand that as a child of God, God allows those things into our lives for his glory and his glory alone. We exist in order to give glory to God. If you look in the past, you'll notice some things about the glory of God. In in the Old Testament, God was always trying to get men to see his glory. Whether it was Moses and the burning bush, all, all the different instances in the Old Testament where God revealed himself in some form or fashion. He was always trying to get them to see his glory to some degree. And the Bible says that in the future he will display his glory in such a way that everybody is going to see it. You won't be given an option whether you're going to see his glory or not. But I started thinking, what about the present? What significance does the glory of God have for us, the day and age we live in now, January 2nd, 2011. Turn over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul writes this verse. And it's, it's key to understanding the glory of God in the present day and age in which we live. Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God is not found in some bush today, on top of some mountain. The glory of God, the Bible says, was found in a building in the Old Testament, in a tent, on the face of men, when they came in contact with God, in the sky, the Shekinah glory, in the garden. And in the the future, the glory of God will be displayed in the coming of Christ. But right now, we have to understand, beloved, right now the glory of God should be displayed in His church. That's where 
it should be displayed. The reason I say that is because over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes this, Christ in you is the what? Hope of glory. What's any hope that we have of glory? It's only Christ in us. This needs to be displayed through our lives to a lost and dying world. And when it's not, it does not honor, it does not glorify God. 2 Corinthians 4.6, Paul writes this, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, if the glory of God in the face of Christ is to be seen by anyone today, it has to be seen through us. It has to shine through the church. That's the only way people are going to see his glory. The greatest calling for a believer is to glorify God, to adorn the doctrine of God, as Paul says in Titus 2.10. So in this present age, the glory of God, God has called us to manifest his glory to a lost and dying world. And if the world is ever going to see his glory, it must be made visible through Christ in us, the hope of glory. Well, how do you glorify God? How do you do that? What's a practical way in which you can do that? I mean, that's the key question that we want to answer this morning. How, if, glory of, if the glory of God is so important, and today, in the day and age we live, God wants to glorify himself through his church which if you're a believer in Christ, then you're part of his church. And you're on display for the glory of God. How does that look? How do we do that practically? The supreme purpose in life for any man or any woman, for that matter, anyone, who's ever been born, is to glorify God, to give God glory. That's what living is all about. So many times we forget that and we get focused on our own selves and we forget focused on our own circumstances. And they overwhelm us at times and and all of a sudden we feel like there's a dark cloud over us and we feel, you know, boy, we, we just can't do anything to get out from under this. And we lose our way in all those troubles and trials and tribulations and pretty soon we're questioning is God even in control anymore well the glory of God says just the opposite the glory of God says yes he is and that's the chief end of the Christian life spiritual maturity is concentrating and focusing on the person of God that's what spiritual maturity is If you want to become more spiritual mature in your life, spiritually mature in your life, you need to focus on the glory of God. You need to focus on God. You need to focus on God's word. And I want to just give us some practical ways for the Christian to glorify God in the day and age we live today. 
first key to glorifying God in 2011 is, first of all, pretty simple. And none of these are rocket science. You're not going to look at any of these points and go, wow, where did he get that one? I never saw that before. This is a time of kind of a uh, uh, review of the basics, you might say. The first thing there is confess your sins. Confess your sins. That sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? Confession of sin glorifies God. Because if you excuse your sin, if you're not confessing your sin, but you're doing the opposite, you're excusing your sin, you're basically taking away any responsibility for your own sin. And then you're, you're blaming God for letting you get into a mess that you're in, whatever it may be. You remember back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The woman whom you gave me. Remember Adam's word? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. What was he doing? He wasn't confessing his sin. He was absolving himself, saying, wait a minute, no, it's not me. He was practically telling God, he did it. You did it, God. That's that's why I'm in this mess. That's why we ended up eating the fruit. You did it. It's your fault. If you hadn't given me this woman woman in the first place, then we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now, God. None of this would have happened. See, when we do that, we blame God. And what do we do? We assign guilt to a holy God. That does not glorify God. God is never at fault when we sin. Do you understand that? He is never at fault when we sin. Ever. It lands 100% right on us. Right in our lap. And sometimes that's hard to deal with. That's hard to understand. Sometimes we imply that he is somehow responsible. And when we do that... That really takes away from his holiness. Those, unfortunately, who try to sneak out from under the absolute responsibility for their own sin, in turn commit a grievous sin (laughs) against the glory of God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, you can read that since we confess our sins, not if. There shouldn't even be a question mark there. And the reason that there shouldn't be a question mark there is look at what the rest of that verse says in 1 John 1.9. It says, since we confess our sins, he is what? Mean and nasty and judgmental? No. He's condemning? No. It says that he is faithful and he is righteous to what? To forgive us of our sins. And not only that, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the God we serve. The God we serve is when we come to him in confession of our sin. He's not there with a big baseball bat ready to hit us over the head.
Now, I have to say this, that as Christians, on occasion, we take this a little too far. We think because, well, we live in the day and age of grace, and hey, I'm under the blood of Christ, and, you know, what, what does it matter if I go out and do these things that I would never do in a Sunday morning service? I would never say this in a church service, but I'll say it out here. I would never do this here, but I'll do it over here. And somehow we've, we've grown lax in our understanding of the holiness of God. That God commands us to be holy. That God commands us to be a holy people, a people set apart for His glory. We think, well, you know, so there's a little nudity and a little sex in the movie. I can go. It's not a big deal. Does that glorify God? I can listen to this music. It's what, does that glorify God? I can put this in my body. Does that glorify God? See, we make excuses sometimes for the things that we do, thinking that God's just going to kind of overlook everything. Don't get me wrong, we are under the grace of God. Thank God, or I wouldn't be here. I'd be dead. (laughs) And neither would you. We'd all be dead. Thank God for his grace. But let's not overlook the idea that when we fall, beloved, we are instructed to go to him and confess that sin. What's that word mean, confess? Homologio, it means to say the same thing. Say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. That's exactly what it means. Don't try to color it in a different way. Don't make it try to be something it's not. Well, yeah, I have a grudge against that person, but you know what? They did this to me. Well, what's the scripture say? See? And we try to justify our attitudes. We try to justify our sins. And that's the opposite of confessing our sins. That's the opposite of repenting of our sins, turning away from them. To confess means to agree with God that sin is all our fault. And then to repent, to turn away from it. That's true confession. See, that act glorifies God. That will bring you a lot of happiness in 2011 if you can get that first truth. The confession of your sins. Do you know that you don't have to beg God for forgiveness? I was in a Catholic church recently, and I was sitting there in the pew, and I was looking over, and I saw the confessionals. <laughs> and all these memories just came back in my mind. And I remember I used to go in there, and you'd kneel down, and the little light would come on, and the little screen would slide back. And you'd say, Father, forgive me. It's been so long since my last confession. You know, that then you say, go through this stuff. And then he would say something. And then you would say your confession. Whatever the bad things that you did wrong. Sometimes I used to make them up. I'd go in there and make things up. Silly. That's what I did, though. And at the end of my confession, the priest would say, okay... 
absolve you, whatever. And he'd say, go out and say two Hail Marys and our Father and a bunch of prayers. So after you're done, you go out of the booth, you go over to the pew, you kneel down, you look real spiritual, and, you know, if you have a rosary, you do the rosary. If you have, you know, just prayers, you're supposed to pray, you pray them. All to earn God's forgiveness, you understand. It's not as simple as just going to God and saying, God, you know what, I blew it, forgive me. I'm sorry. I know that this, this action or this thought was dishonoring to you. Please forgive me. Help me to, 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 to not do this again. Help me, give me strength in the future to avoid this sin. I'm taking ownership of it. I don't need to go to some booth and talk to some guy behind a screen about that. He is faithful and just to forgive us as soon as we agree with him that it's wrong. He doesn't carry around in his back pocket and the next time you go to him, oh, you're back again with that one. Remember last time you came? He doesn't do that. He's not like us. (laughs) Okay. The Bible says that when he forgives, when we confess and that forgiveness is there and it's real, he buries it in the depths of the sea. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. We don't have to beg him for forgiveness. We just need to confess it. We need to repent and ask God. Bear responsibility. We're big on responsibility in other areas of our lives. But when it comes to God's word and it comes to God's holiness in in our lives, somehow we skirt around the issue. And God is just saying, you know what? I want my church to be a window of my glory to a lost and dying world. And the only way that can really happen is if the individuals who make up that church take a long, hard look at their own lives and say, you know what? Maybe there are a couple things that I'm holding on to, making excuses. Maybe I need to confess them and get them out of the way for the new year. Secondly, the second key to having a glorious new year in 2011 is bearing fruit. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Look at verse 8. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he says, My Father is glorified by this. You want to know how to glorify God? Well, here's a good indicator. Don't you you just love how the Word of God is so simple? It's so basic. It doesn't give us a code. Well, you have to go work this formula out, and then maybe you'll figure out how to glorify God. No, he says, if you want to glorify God, my Father is glorified by this, that you what? What's it say? That you bear much fruit. That you bear much fruit. Why? Why is the Father glorified when we bear fruit? Why would that glorify Him? It's very simple. Because the world can see the results of a spirit-filled, fruit-bearing life in you when that happens. That's why we're here. That's why God left us here, to put his glory on display to a lost and dying world. Look over at Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul writes there, he says, Walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
fully pleasing Him. Are you walking in a, a worthy manner before the Lord? Are you fully pleasing Him? It doesn't say half. It doesn't say three quarters. It says, are you given 100% to please the Lord? And then it says this, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the righteousness, the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. See, when we bear fruit in our lives... Well, what do you mean by that? Good works. Works, you, you can look at your life and you can see God working to some degree in your life. And other people can see that. When we live a life of good works, when we see God working, the world sees it and doesn't glorify us, it glorifies God. And when they do glorify us, we should deflect that and say, no, 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 it's not me, it's God. Is your life bearing fruit? It should be. It should be. Last year, I had gave the opportunity to fill out a card on some goals. I, th- I think I said list three things that you want to do in 2010 in your spiritual life. And I'm going to do the same thing next Sunday. So this is a heads up. Be praying about this. Be thinking about this. And what those folks did is they filled out the card, three things, and put it in an envelope, sealed it, and they put their address on it. And a couple of days ago, I mailed it back to them. I didn't look at it. That's between them and God. But I wonder how some of them did. Hopefully, when they opened the envelope, they said, wow, this is great. Look, at here's what I planned to do. Here's what I wanted to do, and I did more. God did more in my life. Or it could have been, you know what? <laughs> wow, I missed every one. But you know what? That's, that's where God's grace is. We're in a new year. Every day is a new day in Christ. Don't get discouraged. Don't get frustrated. Be thinking and praying about, God, what do you want to do in my life in 2011? What kind of fruit do you want to produce through me? Maybe those coworkers that don't know you. Maybe, maybe I need to be a little more aggressive with the gospel with them. Be a little more honest with where I'm coming at with my beliefs. Be a little more straightforward with the gospel. Maybe I need to reach out a little more. Maybe I need to spend a little more time in the word. Maybe I need to... You know, I mean, this is a great time to begin the challenge of reading through the Word of God in a year. A lot of you do that. But we need to remember that we not only confess our sin, but God is also looking for fruit. He wants to see evidence that He's working in your life. If there's no evidence there, there may not be any life. Third thing, give praise to God. Give praise to God. I'm not talking about some weird charismatic thing here. 
But Psalm 50, 23 says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. See, when we praise God, that honors him. That glorifies him. One way to praise God is to give him credit for everything. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 to 31, you can read that on your own, but when Joab won the victory against Rabah, he got a possession of the enemy's crown. And what did he do? He sent for David so he could present the crown to him. He didn't hold on to the crown, put it on his own nightstand and say, hey, look at the reward I got. See, that's a, a good illustration of how the Christian should act toward the master. When God blesses us with something and we win a victory in our life, we don't wear the crown. What are we going to do when we go to heaven? And what are we going to do with the crowns that we receive? What does the Bible say? We're going to cast them at his feet. We're not going to put them on our head and parade around and say, hey, look at my crown. I got a bigger one than you. That's not what we're going to do. That's not what heaven's about. We're going to give praise to God. You give it back to the Lord who has won the victory for you. See, some of you may be going through some very, very difficult times right now. And you're saying, you know what? You don't understand where I'm at. It's hard for me to praise God right now. I I totally understand what you're saying. But it goes back to this verse. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. It's not about your feelings. It's not about what you want to do or what you feel like doing. It's about what God tells us to do. It's an active step of faith. Give praise to God. And you'll see your circumstances change. Not only that, but be content. Be content. Learn to be content. This is something we have to learn as a people because we just aren't. The American person, almost to a one, is not content. We're just the the opposite. We're discontent. We're discontent about our circumstances. We're discontent about ourselves. Wow, I shouldn't have this much weight, or I should look like this, or I should have this, or I should be this, or whatever. I wish I was that personality, or I wish I could do that, or be like that person. I mean, we're so discontent as a people. Sometimes, you know, I just step back and say, you know what, God, you made me this way. This is who you made. Warts and all. This is how God made us. And by his grace, I'm asking you to use us somehow. He made us. He knows us best. He promises to supply all of our needs. See, and when we're content, we acknowledge God's sovereignty in our lives. And that gives him glory. I remember when I was early in ministry at First Baptist Church and just in youth ministry, and that's basically what I did, just day in, day out, 24-7, just youth ministry, youth ministry, youth ministry. Wasn't really dating, didn't do anything. The pastor was always trying to fix me up with somebody. And, you know, I just, it wasn't, I wasn't interested, but it just, it wasn't my focus. And I'll never forget the day God blessed me with my wife. I wasn't looking for a wife. Matter of fact, I was claiming to be Paul, and I'll be single until I die, and all this stuff, you know. But God knew better. He always knows better. 
But what I'm saying is I was content where I was at. And that is key. Especially when you're in ministry and you're a single guy and you're, you're working with youth and people are trying to marry you off every other week. If you're not content, you're either going to make a big mistake and marry somebody God doesn't have for you or you're just going to be miserable. And I'd always just smile and say, oh, yeah. Well, don't you think there's a nice girl? Yeah, she's a nice girl, but, you know, we'll see. It's up to God. And I was kind of shy, so I didn't really date or anything. But you know what? God had it all under control because God is sovereign. See, if we're discontented, it's the same way, it's the same thing as questioning God's wisdom. When you're discontented in your life about something, it's really like poking your finger in God's face and saying, you know what? You got this wrong, pal. I don't agree with what you're doing. That doesn't glorify him. That doesn't lift up God. That doesn't exalt Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul said this. And trust me, he knew from experience. Because he was in all sorts of circumstances. Philippians 4, 11 Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? Content. To be content. Notice I'm saying content, not complacent. (laughs) Big difference. Content is looking at your situation and saying, you know what? I may not understand this. This may not feel comfortable, but you know what? God is sovereign and this is where he has me right now. Paul was confident that God would use all those things in his life, whether it's poverty or abundance, whether it's comfort or pain. And he would use it for Paul's good and for God's glory. That's what he says in Romans 8.28. The verse that's so often quoted by, by folks. Whatever it is, You know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say just good things. It says whatever. Paul didn't say, you know what, I'm going to give God glory in spite of my pain. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it. No, he didn't say that. He said, I will give God glory because of my pain. I will give God glory because of my poverty. I will give God glory, whatever, fill in the blank. See, a Christian who is discontented for any reason, whether it's a job, a spouse, a lack of a spouse, finances, they're really a horrible testimony about the goodness of God. I mean, what kind of God do we have? Is he really sovereign? Can he really be trusted? The lost and dying world is looking at us day in and day out, watching our lives, watching our attitudes, watching how we deal with adversity in our lives. And glorifying God means that we praise him. And we have to praise him with absolute contentment. Knowing that our lot is God's plan for us now. If you can get that, you're you're well into having a good 2011. No matter what may come your way, if you just choose, you know what, I'm going to be content, I'm going to praise God. Because I know God 
would not allow something into my life just because he's mean, just because he's nasty, just because he wants me to suffer. No, he wouldn't do that. He would allow maybe a hard thing into my life because he knows that I've got to work through it. He's trying to mold me and make me into the image of his son day in and day out. Last time you looked at a potter working on a, on a potter's wheel, I, d- I don't see him going like this, you know, oh, I just touched the clay a little bit. I don't want to break it. No, you see him. He's wrapped around his body's a mess and he's moving this clay back and forth. And I don't know about you, but if I was the clay, I'd be hurting. <laughs> some of you have got some uh, resolutions as far as exercise go. I can tell just by the way some of you walked in here today. You know, <laughs> a little stiff. Got some new resolutions for the gym. That's fine. That's good. We need to take care of our bodies. But that's what God is trying to do each and every day. Mold us and make us into his image. Another thing is pray according to his will. Pray according to God's will. John fourteen thirteen says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That directly relates to his glory. When we ask something in his name, what does that mean? Does that mean just tagging on, you know, uh, in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer? That's not what that means. In Jesus' name at the end of a prayer is not some magical formula that if you leave it out, God won't answer your prayer. That's not what that means. Whatever you ask in my name, what that means is whatever you ask that represents my desires, not yours. Whatever you ask that honors me, that glorifies me, that will I do. So you can pray for your brand new pink Cadillac all you want. But if that's not what God wants for you to glorify him, you're not going to get it. At least not from God. So whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. How much time do we spend praying for things according to God's will and not our will. When's the last time you looked at a list of people, their names on a page, who are without Christ, don't know Christ? How often do you pray for them? You don't think it's God's will that they be saved? The Bible says that He desires that none perish. That's one step of it. Praying according to God's will. When's the last time you prayed that God would bless our church? That we would see people come to Christ. See, Jesus' name signifies all that he is and all that he would want. And when we pray in his name, it means praying in accordance with his character and with his will. That's simply what it means. And the neat thing is, is God delights to reveal his glory in answered prayer. When you're praying for something that you know your back's up against the wall, and man, you're praying, God, please answer this. And you know what he does? Who gets the glory? He does. Maybe you look at your own life. Maybe you're looking at your, your relationship with your spouse. Maybe you're looking at your relationship with your kids. And you're saying, man, I need help. Start praying according to God's will and acting upon it. That's why he commands us to pray, so he can show us his greatness and we can give him the praise he's worthy to receive. 
We don't pray just to change things. That's our mentality. That's not God's. A lot of times prayer has just the opposite effect. We go to God and, 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 and we're asking him to do all these things. A lot of times prayer is for our benefit, is, is for the benefit of making us more into the image of his son. We need to be praying according to his will. Also proclaiming God's word. Proclaiming God's word. Paul wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. 2 Thessalonians 3.1. He, he wrote this, Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. That's a great prayer. That's a prayer that God takes delight in. Would you pray for that? Pray that, you know what, the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it also did with you. How was the word glorified through those believers? Because they heard it, they believed it, their lives were transformed, they trusted Christ, they were born again. Who gets the glory for that? God. God's the only one that can save us. And when we come along and we present the word clearly and accurately and succinctly, that always gives him glory. Don't ever shy away from giving people the word of God. Sometimes we, it feels awkward to quote a verse to somebody. But that's where the power is. I mean, it's great to show your testimony and everything, but include Scripture. Include the Word of God. It has the power for the salvation of the soul. Every time our Sunday school teachers teach a class of kids, whether it's one kid, whether it's two kids, whether it's eight kids, Every time that Bible study leader opens the word in someone's living room. Every time a father sits down with his children or his family and starts to read the word. God is glorified in that. And I know, beloved, that sometimes that stuff gets on the back burner because life is busy and hectic. But we need to be refocused on what is going to glorify God in 2011. We honor him by making his word known and understood. And we can't do that unless we first know it and understand it. That's why we think it's important that people be plugged into small groups, whether it's a women's Bible study, whether it's one of the groups on Wednesday or Friday night. Why? Because you build community with people that are concerned about growing in Christ. They want to grow more like their Savior. You do that through the teaching of the word, through the receiving of the word. Last thing is lead others to Christ. Lead others to Christ. Do you know that God gets glorified when people are redeemed, when people are saved? I mean, think about it. When you came to Christ, I mean, the angels had a party in heaven, right? I mean, that's important to understand. He's glorified when Satan's Prison is broken, and the men and women are released from the burden of their sins. People are saved from their sins in order to give God glory, not just because they won't go to hell. Remember, I started this off saying the chief end is to give God glory in everything we do. So the more people who get converted, the more 
Thanksgiving is going on, and the more Thanksgiving that's going on, the more praise that's going on, the more God is glorified, the more God is honored. Those are just seven things that hopefully you can look at and pray about and say, okay, where am I at with these seven? How do they fit into my life? When we live to glorify God, beloved, he responds by giving us overwhelming joy in spite of our circumstances. That's the good thing. And you might be sitting there this morning saying, you know what, you don't understand what I'm going through right now. I got, you know, I just don't have any joy and it's just hectic, hectic, hectic. You know what? Here's my answer. Start glorifying God. Start looking to God and saying, you know what, God, this is not a a fun place to be in, but you know what? Help me glorify you through this. Joy doesn't necessarily always make sorrow, discouragement, pain, and failure go away. A lot of times I've found myself right in the midst of discouragement or pain or failure, but I still have the joy of the Lord in my heart. Christians can experience a supernatural joy even in the midst of those things. And the one thing that will steal your joy more than anything else is sin. And when our joy begins to fade, it's a sure sign of sin or unbelief in someone's life. Well, what can you do? Simply get down on your knees, confess the sin that's in your life. Pray like David prayed in Psalm 51, 12. Restore to, me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then you yield to the Spirit again and the joy returns. Jesus desires that joy remain in us. His joy that we know in part now and one day it will be perfected in heaven. One verse I'll leave you with before our communion time is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Paul simply writes this. We shall always be with the Lord. <laughs> if you can't get joy out of that verse, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter what's... If you have a connection with God through Christ, he's always going to be there with you. Nothing is going to break that bond. We shall always be with the Lord. I pray that as you embark on your new year, 2011, and you pray about what to put on that card next Sunday, and I'll mail it to you at the end of 2011, and you can look at it and figure out how you did, how you and God did. Um, It doesn't have to be some high lofty goal. It's just good to stop and think, okay, you know what, God, what do you... What do I want you to do in my life this next year? And you'd be surprised how God would be glorified in the end. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, that you would minister your grace to us once again. Lord, we thank you for this table that's before us. We thank you for the elements, the the cracker and the juice, and what it represents, the broken body of our Lord and Savior and the blood that has been shed for the forgiveness of sin. And Lord, we pray this morning that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would break down the barriers that holds them. And Lord, that you would open their heart to the good news of the gospel. 
Father, I pray that only you can do that work. Nobody can do that for them. I pray that they would cry out to you in uh, humility and, and ask you for forgiveness to make them the kind of person that you desired them, that you created them to be, one that has fellowship with you and with your people. And for us Christians, Lord, we pray that you would um, remind us that this is another year, and Lord, we don't know what this year will hold. There may be some here, sitting here right now, who may not be here next year. We don't know. There may be, there will be new, new life in this church, babies being born with their own personalities. And, and Lord, we, just, we, we thank you that you're a God who works in our midst, whether we're big or small, you're at work. And Lord, help us to keep focused on what's pleasing to you, what's honoring to you, and would give you honor and glory. Pray now you prepare our hearts for our communion time together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.